Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. Today, we're going to discuss environmental justice and climate equity, justice and equity. These terms are often used interchangeably, but they're really not. The International Bar Association defines justice in this context as the legal and procedural rights relating to the enjoyment of a safe, clean, healthy, and sustainable environment. Equity, on the other hand, is the equal application of justice and other environmental benefits to everyone, regardless of income, race, or other characteristics. Equity works to balance access to resources while protecting vulnerable communities from environmental hazards. Yet environmental hazards are consistently placed in poor communities, toxic waste dumps, CAFOs, chemical plants, even highway projects. And policies aim to improve the environmental issues often spread costs and benefits unevenly across different groups. Experts acknowledge that climate change will disproportionately affect low-income communities, and that's those communities least responsible for climate change. We're joined today on Zoom by Beto Lugo, Executive Director of Clean Air Now. Hi, Beto. Hello. Jackie, Jackie Patterson. Executive Director of the Chisholm Legacy Project. Hi, Jackie. Hi. Jelly Duckworth, Climate Equity and Community Engagement Strategist with Live Zero. Hi, Jelly. Hi, Bob. Ramona Williams, Executive Director of Mississippi Communities United for Prosperity. Hi, Ramona. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start by going around the room and letting each of you talk about the issues your group addresses. Jackie, can we start with you? Sure, thanks <clears throat> Thanks again for having me, Bob. So the Chisholm Legacy Project, it's, it's the full name is the Chisholm Legacy Project, a resource hub for black frontline climate justice leadership. And as you talked about in your opening remarks, we recognize the disproportionate impact that uh, the environmental injustice, climate injustice has on, um, on BIPOC communities and low-income communities as well, and BIPOC meaning Black, Indigenous, People of Color communities. And our work uh, with the Chisholm Legacy Project is coming out of the work that I've done for the last 12 years with the NAACP as director of the Environmental and Climate Justice Program, and really recognizing some of the unique both challenges and the unique ways of organizing and building power and self-determination with, uh, with Black communities. And so our, the Chisholm Legacy Project works with and, and works in service of, of Black communities and also works in, 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 in movement with BIPOC communities um, more, more broadly. But our work is on um, building capacity and building self-determination and supporting black community, black community self-determination. So it's everything from working with communities like uh, Sam Branch, Texas, where it's a freedman settlement that hasn't had running water since its inception and emancipation. And so working with them to, to develop action plans, how do they, how do they, uh, how, how do they take, take the reins from having a situation over these years where they're reliant on people to bring donated bottles of water every Saturday to their local church in order to have water to drink and cook with and bathe and clean with. 
sorry. And so um, our work with the Chisholm Legacy Project is to make sure that communities like that are able to, to, to really, again, have the reins of what happens in their communities going forward. And we know that they're not alone. So we're also working with other communities that find themselves in similar circumstances. In addition, we are working with the, the movement, helping the, the, the broader climate justice movement to address its issues around anti-Black racism and to be able to incorporate racial justice more strongly in their, um, in their broader climate justice agenda. So providing racial justice analysis, providing policies that is sensitive around racial justice issues. And I'll just wrap with saying also working with, uh, with mainstream organizations that are working on climate and environmental issues to deepen their understanding around JEDI, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, so that as they are as we try to shift resources so that they're more shared with frontline communities, we also rec recognize that as it stands, they still are getting the lion's share of, of the resources. So at the very least, we want them to understand how they can do better by, with, and in service to our communities. And then the fourth um, FOSI is working on Black femme leadership. So Black um, black uh, black women and um, other, other folks who identify on the female um, as, as female, um, we see how so often uh, Black femmes are holding down so much of the movement, ho holding down their families, holding down their organization, their communities. And as we saw in Alabama and Georgia, holding democracy <laughs> in terms of, uh, and so much on, on, on the shoulders of Black femmes. And so our work is really not to help them to work harder or work more or work better, but to help them to be held as they do the work that they do. So providing access to resources resources around uh, uh, life coaching, job coaching, executive coaching, access to respite and, re and um, restoration retreats and residencies, access to healing justice resources and otherwise. So I'll, I'll wrap there, but uh, that is our work in a nutshell. Thank you. Thank you. Shelly, um, tell us about the issues that you and your group work on. Sure, thank you. And Jackie, that's amazing to hear about your group. So thank you for sharing. Um, so Live Zero is kind of a baby that birthed from a lot of my work on the ground as a community organizer and um, specialist in community engagement and making sure that we were creating democratic processes uh, so that communities were not only in the process of creating and implementing, but also benefiting from the programs and policies around climate and specifically making sure that we were looking at intersectional issues. So we really take a health and cultural equity standpoint when we look at uh, climate, the climate crisis and how, how we approach that. So it goes beyond just starting stopping at race uh, or starting at race. Uh, we don't stop there. We really go into the cultural aspects of it too. So uh, with that being said, it's more than just, you know, looking at BIPOC and those, those situations, but also understanding the historical systemic barriers that I have for all people, whether that is religious, um, you know, whether that is based on their sexuality. And so a lot of those other intersections really matter when we're looking at overall, not only data, but also how we engage and we're really inclusive of all communities. Um, and so uh, we, we work primarily with frontline communities, those who are experiencing, and we take a very asset first approach 
um, meaning that we go into the community saying you are an asset, you have strengths before we say you're a community that has been marginalized and has issues. And I think that is something that we we constantly get away or we get too wrapped up in is saying historically marginalized communities is recognition in that, but we also want to recognize the, the power um, that is already existent within the community. Um, so uh, really just to build capacity and momentum, working with community-based organizations and municipalities to strengthen their work and their approach um, to look more holistically at the climate crisis from a health and cultural equity lens. And so um, I help train organizers, primarily build leadership, uh, female leadership in this space. Uh, BIPOC female leadership in this space is really important. Um, so um, wanting to be wanting to use equity as a conduit to getting towards justice, while also changing the storytellers and changing the leadership. So that's really the essence of Live Zero and the work that I do is still very much on the ground, but also supporting that with data and now moving policy. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Omar, welcome. Glad you could join us. Tell us about um, the work you're doing, the issues, I mean, the Low Country Alliance for Model Communities. Yes, uh, so uh, thank you again for having me. Um, the Low Country Alliance for Model Communities work on uh, revitalization of low wealth communities. We primarily work in seven uh, communities in the city of North Charleston. Uh, we focus on four core areas, affordable housing, economic development, education, and environmental justice. And the strategies that we use uh, empower communities, right? We tap into the resources and the power that already exist in communities and help them to uh, uh, amplify their voice, uh, to, to seek the change that they uh, uh, want to see. Um, our work also centers the community voice in, in, in a lot of the work that we do. Um, the community engagement um, uh, aspect of our work centers the community in, in that work. Uh, we also provide um, uh, numerous trainings uh, to our residents to help them build their capacity to become the advocates um, of, of change that they see. Thank you. Ramona? Hi, yes, uh, my name is Ramona Taylor-Williams and I am the executive director. Uh, we just went, uh, recently went through a name change um, to Mississippi Communities United for Prosperity. Uh, in 2018, our organization, well, actually uh, the community, uh, Duck Hill, Mississippi, we received a grant from the Southeastern Sustainability Directors Network uh, to create a model for sustainability and equity in rural Mississippi. And the name of, uh, we coined the motto, ACEEDS, which stands for Achieving Sustainability Through Education and Economic Development Solution. And um, we used EPA seven elements of collaborative problem solving for our community engagement work, engage residents and extensive listening project to hear what they saw uh, or what they felt were the top priorities to address from a sustainability and an environmental justice perspective. This particular community had been flooding for many, many years and uh, flooding was their top priority of a problem to solve. So we designed a program that would 
mitigate the flooding using gray and green infrastructure technology. Uh, and uh, we focused on youth development. Uh, we were also chosen by um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to build, uh, build out a model for community and youth leadership development. Out of that, um, out of that process, our partners were Urban Institute and Community Science. And as um, the fellows that participated in the Leadership Institutes represented six counties, which uh, caused us to expand our work and our footprint into six counties versus one county, which is Montgomery County, which was our original name, Montgomery Citizens United for Prosperity. So our focus is centered on community organizing, educating around climate change and environmental justice. Uh, often in small rural areas, residents do not understand that the, um, the issues that they are dealing with like flooding, for instance, that those, those issues are the direct result of climate change. So we focus on uh, empowering communities through planning and design and bringing solutions to the problems that the communities have identified. Um, and uh, so with this funding from the uh, from, um, Southeastern Sustainability Directors Network, we were able to mitigate the flooding, stop the flooding, the town of Duck Hill no longer floods. And uh, we also have um, created um, a comprehensive, uh, kind of like a hybrid STEM program for the youth. And uh, we call it um, uh, the Aseeds Creek Rangers Program. And our youth, the program has gained national recognition. Um, so we are now looking and we'll be partnering with Omar uh, to launch a year long intensive training that will uh, assist residents to uh, be able to create um, community driven climate assessment and vulnerability climate assessment and resiliency plans. So we approach um, environmental justice and also climate justice through the lens of community and economic development. Because bottom line, poor communities, poor folks don't like being poor and they want their communities to be healthy, thriving and sustainable, just like all other communities and communities of, in, of affluence. So by uh, bringing together strategic partners uh, from across the board, planners, architects, engineers. Um, uh, this afternoon I had a meeting with a park, uh, a recreation designer, bringing all of those partners and pieces together so that we will be able to design communities in small rural areas, in particular in the Delta of Mississippi and Central Mississippi, so that we can have healthy and thriving communities. And that's kind of like what we do in a nutshell. 
Well, thank you. And we also focus heavily on, 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 on moving public policy. <laughs> That's excellent. We certainly need that. Beto, tell us about Clean Air Now. Yeah, hi. So <clears throat> thank you for inviting me, Bob. Uh, so yeah, Clean Air Now has been around for a number of years, really a grassroots organization started out of a neighborhood committee members um, concerned about their health and fossil fuel related air pollution from um, diesel exhaust, but also from the industrial chemical plants uh, nearby their home, Finstein to their home. So really concerned around those issues and also knowing that these communities, even though they were concerned, their families also work in these industries, right? So it's one of those approaches that when we think about climate justice, where we really need to think about, about it holistically because it's not just it's not just the, the facilities, it's also the workers and how we transition into cleaner jobs, right, into a just transition. But the organization, I can tell you that has been, uh, has had an impact in the region since its inception. Uh, I can tell you that through the organizing that happened early on, um, we prompted an EPA study to look uh, closer at some of the localized uh, emissions. However, it wasn't a health related study. So, you know, there's, there's like that missed opportunity there, right, to really look at that and correlate that to any, any health data that, that would uh, be available from maybe one of the local institutions or hospitals in the area. But I can tell you that at, around that time, uh, other communities were really interested in learning more about these impacts, not just on the Kansas City, Kansas um, side, but also on the Missouri side. So uh, as we move forward as an organization, our bylaws, you know, are are broader for both of the state line, but a lot of our focus is really um, in the communities of Kansas City, Kansas, right at the moment, uh, fencing to industry that are being harmed on an everyday basis, right? The air quality, the air pollution that they're exposed to every day from the concentrations of heavy duty uh, emission trucks, and then the cumulative impacts of all these other sources of pollution uh, that they're, they're experiencing. So, really looking at through that and also making sure like Omar and everyone else has mentioned and Jelly is that community leads, right? Community led projects. All of our all of our projects are designed in a way that the community is really the driver behind it, right? Um, there's uh, uh, they're part of the decision making and what is it that we need to do next? And you know, with the COVID crisis, we've had to also uh, modify or, or, or switch our projects a little bit, you know, switch them up a little bit in the way that how we're going to accomplish them. But I think overall is building those, those, um, those leaders that already exist in the community and making sure they're equipped, right, with the data and the tools that they need to come and sit in these decision-making tables where they're drafting action plans for us when they're not including the brown and black and indigenous uh, poor, white, into those conversations, right? The utilities are driving those, a lot of those conversations. So we know there's an urgency, right? As Jenny mentioned, that we need to equip everyone to be able to be the leaders and be at that table. Because if not, like, you know, I think we can get into this a little further, uh, a little later, is that, you know, a lot of the infrastructure that is currently being built is always for the most affluent, right? And so we really need to make sure that when we think about environmental justice, it's, you know, the outcome of it is equity, environmental justice is equity, right? And so when we think about that, we also need to think about, you know, that it's not just air, it's the water, it's the soil, it's everything that's compounded in these communities of color. The COVID crisis hit them harder because they already had these, uh, they already immunosuppressed, they already had respiratory issues happening on top of that. So 
Um, I'll stop there, but that's a little bit of uh, the work that we do, and we also get into policy at the national level. And we're also part of the national climate justice movement. So, you know, I know a lot of the colleagues here, so it's really nice to have see a lot of familiar faces here, Jelly and Ramona and Omar, everyone, you know, and Jackie, like we all know each other. And we know that we are here together, you know, to push um, climate justice. Um, and I just want to add one point when we think about climate justice, it's not just looking at, at the forces against us, it's also looking at them internally within our own organizations and making sure that if we're gonna be in the front, that our practices within our organizations are also part of that, leading us to those efforts. Because what we can forget is that the practices and programs and policies that exist today have put us in a disadvantage, all of our communities of color. And when we allow organizations that might still continue to look at that, then there could be a problem, right? But we really need to also look at that as we confront the climate crisis together. So I'll stop there. Yes. That's great. And, and all, all of your groups are working on these issues and you're working together and supporting each other. So that's a wonderful model. What is the biggest challenge to social equity you're seeing right now? I mean, what is holding that back? Jelly, do you want to touch that? Just one. Yes, I will be optimistic here. That will keep, <laughs> I'll keep that here. But as I, as I mentioned before, the leadership in this space is extremely important to change. We, the only way we're going to change the story, change the narrative, or change the way that we do democratic processes is to change the storytellers to the ones who are actually experiencing these things, right? I always tell people there's a level of difference between myself growing up as a first-generation Mexican-American woman and having different privileges than some of my cousins who are DACA students still, right? There is a difference with that, right? There's degrees of this, and we have to understand too that that story needs to be elevated, um, that the difference that these stories need to be intersectional. And so, um, I having to carve out this this my kind of my own path into this space is not something that I wish on for any other young female, you know, BIPOC professional. I want them to have a pipeline to get into this space and own it too, right? Because we get into this space and surrounded by leadership that does not look like us. Therefore, I have lower confidence to speak up about the situations that are going on. I don't always feel heard and seen. And that, that is all encompassing as well with leadership. And so um, I think that is a major issue that we really need to focus on. Um, like, like Beto said, equipping people, right? Equipping and the talents that already exist, right? Um, and also providing a direct pipeline for them to utilize those talents in a real and meaningful way. Um, the thing I love about community work too is that a lot of times when we think about community engagement, I think this, is a, this may be another issue that I'm dealing with at the policy level, is that community engagement uh, is not prioritized, you know, and they think about that in a, in a very... Um, how do I say, not as a, a rich and healing sense that as it should be taking, it should be taken very seriously. When you add, when you bring community into policy development or program development, you're really doing the work of healing communities and all the disenfranchisement that has been, you know, put among them prior to. And so we really need to be looking at community engagement, um, the, the stereotypes that come with community organizing, we really need to be changing that because those are, as we've seen in every social movement, those are the critical issues that have moved the needle forward and have really kept us in democracy. So there's a lot of, uh, I think that all goes back to really changing the narrative, changing the leadership as some of the biggest issues that I have come across 
um, within social equity. So, is this a question of, of education and empowerment, or are we actually facing objections to empowering these communities? Omar? I would say it's a little bit of both, right? Uh, that those that are in power uh, refuses to share that power. Um, and, and also, I, I think that we are challenged uh, to work with each other uh, collaboratively, right? That's in the movement and outside of the movement, right? We just, for, for um, and, and I think for funding of, you know, the funders, the uh, philanthropic uh, community, uh, they, they fund um, uh, initiatives where it, it doesn't, uh, incentivize uh, collaborative work uh, to get out of our silos and work together. So I think you have that working against your community. You have the power dynamics that exist in communities that are working against them. Um, um, and then like the previous uh, speaker uh, uh, noted, that there is a resistance for community-led efforts, right? Communities determining their destiny. There is definitely a resistance with that. Uh, so I, I see all of that as challenges as we move forward in this movement uh, of being able to, to, to work across our differences, work across our silos, right? Work across our uh, intersection, inter, intersectional um, uh, areas of uh, bodies of work. Um, and I see opportunities where communities can lead many of these conversations, right? Even within our movement, we don't come with all the answers. We do not come with all the solutions. Allow the community to lead those conversations. We're there for technical support, to open up resources, to open up uh, avenues to partnerships and, 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 and funding, to be able for them to work towards addressing their issues and concerns. But they must, the community must be out front. Thank you. You're listening to The Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with Jelly Duckworth, Omar Mohammed, Ramona Williams, Beto Lugo, and Jackie Patterson about environmental justice and climate equity. You know, both the um, Paris Agreement and everybody here has kind of touched on policy. So let's move in that direction a little bit. Both the Paris Agreement and the recent Glasgow Pact have significant languages addressing justice and equity. And we have a growing body of climate legislation here in the United States, but we also have powerful groups opposed to their implementation. Even groups who support fighting climate change often fail to consider the equity issues. So how effective have these climate agreements been in the past? And is there a better way to address equity going forward? Let's go back to Jelly on that. You're giving me loaded questions here, Bob. So I'm going to try to be brief and let everybody else touch on that because that's a, it's a big question. Honestly, when we're looking at these new agreements and we're looking at the talk about race and equity and justice, unfortunately, these are conversations that we are just now feeling comfortable with. And so therefore, anything that is going to be suggested is going to, has been an afterthought. Unfortunately, it has again has not been a priority and has not been the front of the issue or, or the center of the issue, right? Um, and so we have a long way to go. 
I think that we're making, I think, again, to be optimistic, we are making strides to at least having open, having open conversations about what equity should look like at the policy level. More, more than just putting in input, though, is, again, bringing community in the process, creating and implementing and benefiting from these policies. It's more the, the front end work than the back end. And that's something that needs to change when it, when it comes to these, these PACs, right? We can't just have specialists be the ones that list out the equity considerations. We have to start with the community. It has to work from the bottom up if we're really going to focus on healing and getting the, out, the, the outputs that we really want. So, I think that's what I would say. We still have a long way to go with that. We have people on the ground that have been fighting for that, but it needs to translate into the national and international level. Ramona, policy, is your legislative work working? Are there challenges? Where do we go forward with legislation? Well, I am in the South. Uh, I'm in Mississippi. Uh, Unfortunately, Mississippi is a climate denier state. So we have few policies that we can say are directed at climate change and environmental justice and practically zero policies from an equity perspective. We are working to build a movement in the state of Mississippi in order to move the needle towards more just and more equitable public policies. Um, On our next month, we will be launching our Mississippi Defending Democracy Education Environment and Social Justice Network. And that network will take on specifically the uh, public policy work, looking at systems analysis Uh, ensuring that the systems are responding to the needs of vulnerable and low wealth and BIPOC communities in an equitable and just manner. And where they are not evaluating the types of corrective measures that we can take and present in order to begin to push the conversation legislatively around climate change. Climate change is very real. It is significantly impacting the state of Mississippi. More attention has been given on around the coastal, the Gulf Coast area, but it is having a significant impact in in, uh, inland communities, especially up in the Delta, where flooding is just profusely you know, and how are, how are the emergency management systems responding to our communities in the event of the, uh, climate-related disasters? So we have a lot of policy work that um, we uh, have to move uh, forward with. Omar uh, mentioned um, organizations working in silos. Well, our mission is to bring organizations together, bring communities together, provide the leadership tools that are needed to educate first and foremost around the issues of climate change, around the issues of environmental justice. How do we identify environmental justice communities? Do communities know that they are environmental justice communities? So that's the work that we are moving towards. But you know, when you have folks that 
uh, just simply refuse to accept the reality that climate change is happening. It is not going to happen. It is already happening and we are in crisis. And how at a international level, such as the Paris um, Agreement and, uh, and COP26, Jackie attended, uh, Jackie, you attended COP26, didn't you? She attended COP26 so she can speak more um, to what that whole thing looked like. Uh, it was very chaotic from the feedback that I had, but it's bottom line, it's, it, it's, it's up to us. We cannot rely on the powers that be to protect our communities. We can fight, we can uh, make our demands, but until we, until we create a groundswell of community residents who are empowered, who understand, and who can effectively defend our causes, then we will continue to see folks who don't look like us, folks who don't think like us, and folks who don't live like us making the decisions for us. And we have the goal of uh, becoming the architects of pu public policy and no longer being the objects of public policy. So Jackie, you were at Glasgow, you were there for COP26. Did you feel like the um, Glasgow Pact addressed social equity and climate justice? No, um, I mean, it certainly has some elements in there, but it definitely does not. And it couldn't given who was at COP and who wasn't at COP. I mean, first of all, with the with the nation that we had it in, in terms of Glasgow, the there were so many restrictions or there were all the red countries. And so then that, that list was was long. And so the the lack of representation so as as ramona and everyone else is saying the the lack of uh of representation meant that the 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 policy or the lack of of real equity and justice center reflected who wasn't in the room and so um it had a lack of ambition a lack of real commitment to the types of actual systems transformation we need to address climate change and it was because the people who, who are closest to the problem, who know the solutions, weren't there to, to put forward. And even the, to the extent that people were there, there are the power, there's a power imbalance within the, the COP process. So the industrialized nations who act as, as puppets to the in, interest of industry are were there controlling the conversation as always. And so Therefore, we just get kind of not to even call it incremental progress. It's probably overstating things. So that's uh, that's what I would say in a nutshell about the cop. So here you're saying the affluent communities, the affluent countries are controlling the message and controlling the solutions. Yes. Which kind of you know harkens back to Ramona's comment that you know this has to be ground up, you know, from yes. from the roots, the communities. Are going to have to take action because you can't wait for COP or some treaty to come along and fix things for you. 
Omar, what's your experience in the legislative field? I mean, do you feel like it's it's there for you or is it part of the problem? I think it is definitely part of the problem, uh, right? And I think that whole process is designed uh, to be slow uh, on purpose. Uh, that's why it is important uh, that when we are talking about creating solutions, creating uh, initiatives through policy, those, those communities, right, the communities that are impacted by climate change, but contribute the least to climate change, need to be at the table to help to shape and inform uh, the, the, the policy and the decision-making process. That, that has to be paramount. Uh, 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 to get the types of solutions that 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 the community seeks to 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 the, to the climate impact that they feel disproportionate impacts that they feel from 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 climate change. Peter, I know you're working um, Missouri, Kansas, the whole metro area. How's the legislative process working for you in that region? Well, I, <clears throat> I think the legislative process here, it, you know, it's a little, it's a battle, right? With, with the legislators here, we are a conservative, uh, mostly a red state. It's a blue state, but heavily red, right? And Missouri is uh, heavily red. And, and you know, we, what we see in this, you know, to reiterate what some of my colleagues said, you know, the policies and legislations that we want to move forward, right? And that have actually, some that have even been put forward at the national level now, now you know, the talk about climate change and, you know, there's these priorities for environmental justice communities and there's this justice 40 money and these overarching legislation that looks good for a big organization that has been kind of like the, the puppet of government to lead a lot of these, these policies. But none of these, a lot of these policies don't have a direct benefit to environmental justice communities or communities of color. So there's a, there's not a prior there's not a way to prioritize those investments in those communities. So when we think about these policies, we cannot wait for government. We have never been, we have never waited for government. The Justice 40 program is an example of you know an opportunity, but there's also the opportunity for groups that have never done environmental justice to now say, hey, we are at the forefront of the environmental justice movement when groups like a lot of us on the call have started with or without any funding doing this work, right? And so the reason I wanna mention that is that at the end of the day, the solutions have to come from the community, whether there's funding or no funding, they are gonna come from the community. And then I wanna to touch a little bit about the, about the agreement the, uh, and uh, Glasgow, whatever just happened. You know, I think that some, some of the decisions that were made actually put us in a more dangerous path instead of a, a better path forward, right? To getting us to these uh, ambitious climate goals. And I wanna say, for example, you know, there's carbon offsets and, and we've known that through different models, how this puts a, a more danger on certain communities and other communities of color, shift pollution from one place to another. There's net zero, there's carbon capturing, which is also uh, uh, in this, is also being put forward by the fossil fuel industry. So who's to benefit? the same industries that are causing the climate chaos. And so what we see here in the local Kansas City metro area that a lot of policies around climate action and net zero and offsets, uh, but with no tangible targets, right? And the people that are drafting a lot of, a lot of the people behind the scenes 
being part of that drafting of those of those plans are the utilities and the gas companies, which are also part of the problem. So until we can a- we're able to remove them from those conversations, we also we we need them there, right? Because they they need to move forward with you know just transition green uh, or solar farms, and you know move to a, a greener energy. But what I'm saying is that until we move them to the majority of us that are there, you know, they are going to be an obstacle to the work that we are doing, and they have been. And I think one other thing I wanted to touch on is also the investment, like the investment again. Like I said, there's all these this money destined for a lot of EJ communities. However, we already know that local government and local NPOs are lining up to get that money. And you know, guess where they're going to prioritize where wealth already exists, where they can put a charging station with no issues because they know that a person that lives around the corner has an electric car that might benefit from it. They're not thinking about the poor communities where we have been advocating for, for no emissions from as many uh, facilities as possible and putting those resources there where they need it the most. They need the transportation because we haven't invested in, in those communities either with public transportation and the, the heavy concentration of trucks is another example of how all this it's it's concentrated in communities of color and there's a lot of priorities around across the country to go to zero emissions around the the trucks however none of them have a tangible policy that says directed to those communities right so it's not just the communities it's the workers so a lot of our work is a lot of us here collectively is also additional right identifying those other policies that we can put in place to make sure that we're not just offsetting pollution because we are still depending on a power plant in the same neighborhood, that we're able to look at it holistically and tackle it all at once. So I'll stop there. So a lot of our listeners, I mean, they may not be connected to the community or understand these equity issues. How do we engage them? Um, Speaking to our listeners, what would you tell them they need to do and can do to make a difference? Jackie, do you want to start? Sure. Super briefly, I'll say, uh, yeah, I mean, so everyone, everyone has something that they can bring, um, they can bring. And I, and I know that you have a lot of different listeners in different places doing different, <laughs> with different capacities. And so whether it can start as, it can be as small as just starting a conversation at dinner um, where, where we're raising awareness and starting to the dialogue about what it really means to affect the changes that we need in this world. It can go, it can go to, to vol- to putting oneself in service to frontline communities. So if you have an EJ organization in your community that you can volunteer with or support in some way, or if you can, uh, so there, we're in this virtual world now, so you don't have to be physically present with someone to support them. So if you're um, if you're able to to reach out to any of the groups on the on this call um, and and say, you know, what can I do to, to, to help? Like you, you, you never know what talents you might have to bring to bear on a situation um, and really supporting the frontline leadership of, of frontline communities. Um, starting to think about one's spending choices. Um, 
some of these companies that are doing the most harm, they stay in business because we support them. The economy supports them. So we need to start really um, thinking about those types of that type of spending um, and, and how we what, what what we're investing in. So it, it, everything from thinking about how do we um, you know, if you're if you have options to, to buy energy from clean, through clean energy sources or even, you know, so again, from each according to their to their abilities. But those are a few things to, to think about. Certainly joining one's local group, joining a group um, virtually and putting oneself in service to it, starting a conversation, whether it's at dinner or at, in your workplace conversations or um, or on social media, spark sparking some thoughts on social media, um, get, starting to read some of the, the work that's happening in, in frontline communities and what's happening with communities to really get oneself educated. So even as you're sparking those conversations and inspiring others to take action, you're doing it from a place of kind of some, some degree of understanding of what's happening in communities. Those are just a few questions, I mean, suggestions off the top of my head. Thank you. Ramona, being in a climate denier state, I mean, how do you engage your communities and perhaps the politicians to you know, work on these issues? Um, we engage through storytelling, um, telling the story, um, educating, bringing elected officials into the conversation, uh, empowering residents through leadership development, uh, so that they will be able to meaningfully engage uh, and tell their story. So we use the power of uh, storytelling um, a great deal. Um, another way is uh, just making friends and inviting people into our homes and letting them see our communities. Uh, so many people, I mean, as you well know, Bob, you've been in this, you've been in this space for a number of years. And um, the environmental space has been predominantly white space, right? And so how do we connect with those folks who I refer to as mainstream environmentalists with grassroots folk who they may not even know that we exist, that we are the others to them. So bringing and sharing our story, inviting folks in to our communities uh, letting them understand that we want the same quality of life in our communities as everybody else wants. We don't want uh, carbon emissions and uh, black carbon breathing in because we have um, road, we have tractor trailers that are running 24/7 in our communities hauling timber. Right, so what can we do in order to mediate, to remediate some of this burden? As I believe Omar and Beto said, those communities that are bearing the, br the, the brunt of climate change, we're not contributors to the climate change. So, 
So that, I think that's still um, something that we are all trying to think through. How do we get folks who would otherwise not give our communities a thought, but how do we put us on their minds? And when we get on their minds, then we will see them standing in solidarity with us and saying, we want justice. Well, hopefully this broadcast will put all of you on everyone's minds and we can stand in solidarity. I wanna thank our guests for joining us today. Where can our listeners to go to learn more about your work? Ramona? We are in the process of developing our new website. Uh, hopefully it's gonna launch by the end of February, but you can always reach out to me directly at RFT, as in Todd Taylor, Williams at gmail.com. And my phone number is area code 314-363-5229. And we are more than happy to hear from you. You're a braver woman than I am. I would never <laughs> give my phone number out on the air. <laughs> Omar, where can people reach you? Where can they learn about your group? Yes, um, at our website, uh, www.lam, as in Mike, C, N as in Nancy, C.org. Thank you. Better? Yeah, so yeah, you can reach us at uh, my email, B-E-T-O-M-T-Z dot Lugo at gmail.com or at info, C-A-N-K-C dot org. And our website is C-A-N-K-C dot org. So my email, C-A-N-K-C dot org is fine as well. So. Thank you. Jackie, where can people reach you and your group? Thank you. So my our, our website is the Chisholm Legacy Project.org. So just www.thechismlegacyproject.org. You can you know read about us there and you can also sign up on the for more information and it'll, the email goes straight to us all and we'll get back to you for sure. Thank you. Thank you, Shelly. Yeah, you can visit uh, our website at www.livezero, and that's L-I-V-Z-E-R-O.com, or find me on LinkedIn so we can connect. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about the Climate Hour podcast at climategkc.org. That's climategkc.org. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.